Hi, everyone, and welcome to Airway First, a podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Downing. My guest today is Lauren Ruffridge. Lauren is an ASHA certified speech language pathologist with a master's of science from Ithaca College. While she has experience treating clients from infancy through adulthood, she has found that her passion lies in pediatrics, with whom she has worked exclusively for the past 10 years. In 2020, after moving to Manlius, New York, Lauren discovered a lack of availability and experienced feeding therapists for in-home therapy. That's when she founded Thrive Spot to fill this need. Lauren is committed to lifelong learning and advocacy. She focuses on offering the best evidence-based practice methods for her clients and believes in creating treatment strategies that are tailored to the unique needs of each family while empowering the caregiver to be the child's advocate. During the interview, Lauren provided so much eye-opening information for me. I really enjoyed our interview together and I hope you do too. And now here is my interview with Lauren Ruffridge. All right. Hi, Lauren. Welcome. Thanks for being on our podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So before we get started, um, just to kind of level set so we're all understanding, explain to people exactly what a speech language pathologist is and what you do. Absolutely. So a speech language pathologist is also referred to as a speech therapist. So you might hear them interchangeably. Okay. Um, but SLPs can work with people of all ages from babies to adults, which is sometimes a misconception. Um, a lot of people assume we just work in the schools, but mm-hmm. we actually work in medical setting, private practice, and we work with the, the whole age span. Okay. Um, we treat many types of communication and swallowing problems. So the main categories are speech sounds, which is articulation, language, social communication. So the ability to know how to use language socially, um, voice, fluency, which is also known as stuttering, Mm -hmm. um, cognitive communication. So um, anyone who has a traumatic brain injury or any neurological deficits, we would be working on them to redevelop their cognitive communication skills. And then what I personally specialize in is feeding and swallowing. And I work in the pediatric age range, which is from infants through about adolescence. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie. That's what throws me off is when I, when I got to your website, uh, which I will put a link in uh, the show notes for a thrive spot that I had no idea that you actually worked with something. Cause to me, that's yeah. not, that's not, you know, quote unquote speech. That's of course. I know there's a whole movement um, in our profession trying to redefine our title because it's, it doesn't encompass all that we do. And it sometimes misleads families and knowing like, you know, what provider, what professional is there to help you with feeding. So, um, but I will clarify that both speech language pathologists and occupational therapists who are trained in feeding are both qualified professionals to work on feeding. Um, and I did want to just highlight for anyone listening who wanted to learn a little bit more about pediatric feeding disorder, um, a, an organization that I'm a volunteer with is called Feeding Matters. It's feedingmatters.org. And they're a wonderful organization. They have tons of resources for families who are either concerned their child might have um, a pediatric feeding disorder, or if their child does have one, there's tons of support, both from professionals and um, other families who've lived through it. Uh, so I, I love that organization. But I bring it up because they recently advocated to define what pediatric feeding 
disorders are. And so I'm going to just read the definition because they worked really hard for that. And so um, pediatric feeding disorder is impaired oral intake that is not age appropriate and is associated with any combination of four different domains. So those four domains are medical, nutritional, feeding skill, and or psychosocial dysfunction. So they wanted to break those down more specifically and really encompass all of the ways that having any type of difficulty in those four domains can qualify you as having a pediatric feeding disorder. Um, And so that's now in the the diagnostic criteria. We use that as an ICD-10 code. Mm -hmm. And um, so those are the families who I'm working with who uh, fall under that diagnosis. Um, They can also have other diagnoses going on with them. Um, that are contributing to the feeding pediatric feeding disorder. But those are my families who I'm working with most of the time. So as far as, you know, children's airway, the the way that this kind of associates with us is I I would, I can correct me if I'm wrong, it's going to be more on the medical side, right? Because then you're dealing more with jaw development, high arch palates, (laughs) tongue ties, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yes. And so the way it also ties in is that I've um, studied oral facial myofunctional therapy, which is what we'll be talking about a little bit later. And then um, also oral restrictions or tethered oral tissues, which are more commonly known as tongue tie, lip tie, cheek ties, or buckle ties. Um, So cheek ties. Yeah. You can even have ties in the inside of your cheek that can impact feeding. Um, Those don't impact it the most when you're comparing to the tongue and the lip, but Mm -hmm it's all relevant to each individual. So, um, so I've done continuing education in those areas, but they all tie into airway because, um, everything starts with our airway. And if our airway is not intact and if we are not able to adequately breathe through our noses, which is what we're supposed to be able to do, Mm -hmm. it then kind of has a ripple effect on the entire oral facial structure development and the functions in which we use our mouth, our nose for. So breathing, speaking, and eating. And eating. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it all ties in because those, those are the areas that I'm working within. And the airway, of course, dictates so much more than most parents and people know that um, that's why I'm so glad that you're bringing awareness to this whole topic. And I love everything that you guys are doing. Um, I think it's wonderful. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Yeah. and. And I will say, you know, kind of on a personal note, I grew up with a speech impediment. So I worked with a speech language pathologist, mm-hmm. which if anyone ever listens and they hear me slow down, that's what I'm doing because I know what's about to happen with my sounds. But mm-hmm. one of the things that surprised me, you know, when I was reading, I, I did go to your website and did a lot of reading. Um, these kind of things, you know, even language, you know, somebody that has an impediment like mine can impact your breathing. It can impact how you eat. It can impact. I, I never really yeah. thought of that. I just thought it was, you know, an annoyance when you talk, you stumble sometimes. Yeah. It's really, um, it's wild how everything is so interconnected. We, we learn about things in such silos, mm-hmm. like this is your speech. Uh, your, your mouth is for speaking your uh, belly is for digestion. Uh, you know, your legs are for walking, but l- literally everything in our whole body is very interconnected. And when one system isn't working, it's usually impacting another one in a different way, or it's usually mm-hmm. tied to that. Maybe there's a problem in a different system that's impacting your other system. So yes, our whole bodies are so interconnected. And I think that's 
one thing that is lacking in um, a lot of the education programs is just how how interconnected every system is within the body, including starting with the airway. <laughs> right, right, which is crazy. So, mm-hmm. all right, so it, let's just say you, you're working with a, a child with an impediment. Mm-hmm. Um, and first of all, you know, just to clarify, if, if a parent has a child like that, let's not, I'm not trying to send anybody into panic. You know, your child doesn't have an airway issue. We don't know that, but right, of course. What, well, let's start, we'll just start with that and kind of work our way into the more airway impactful ones. What kind of training and work would you do with this child? I mean, obviously it's age dependent. Yeah. So it's, it's for sure age dependent. And um, so we're typically talking about kids who are, you know, two, three, four or older. Obviously we're seeing more speech development come in closer to like three. You should be saying words and phrases, of course, but um, we really don't address articulation or speech sounds until closer to three or four because most um, sounds are still developmentally coming in up until that point. Um, And some some are even coming in later than four. So we're talking five, six, seven for certain sounds. So we would assess the child and A, look at the errors and the patterns uh, because there are different different indicators that would tell us how we would address it. So for instance, so children who are younger uh, will often exhibit phonological processing disorders. Okay. So that is basically patterns where they simplify sounds in words in order to kind of make it easier for them to say. So an example of that would be if you have what we call a cluster and like, which is an SP sound. So in the word spoon, you might hear a younger child say poon instead of spoon. Uh, You know, so that's a typical error sound up until a certain age. It's normal for kids to do that up until a certain age, usually like three, three and a half. If it persists beyond that, then we would assess and determine if there are patterns like that, that they are exhibiting, then we would address it in a certain therapeutic way versus just um, more of a, an error that is not a pattern in terms of the phonological processes. So that's kind of above this conversation a little bit, but um, yeah, so we would, we would assess their articulation and look at at what age they should be saying these sounds and um, then go from there and decide how we would address them based on how they're presenting. But um, we would always be looking for if any of their um, signs or symptoms of speech difficulties are pointing towards an airway problem. So what does that mean? So that would basically be um, if we're seeing children who um, exhibit a tongue thrust, which is basically when you see the tongue pushing forward. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Certain sounds. Sometimes people describe it as a lisp. Um, there's research out there that's showing that that could be indica- um, indicative of an airway concern because the tongue is pushing forward to try and open up the airway, airway yeah. um, a bit. So that's kind of some newer research that I've been hearing about um, and learning about, but. Okay. So, but to go back to your question, um, it depends on the child's age. If they're older than four years old, mm-hmm. then um, I would be assessing them from an oral facial myofunctional standpoint, which is different than a traditional articulation um, assessment. But if they're younger than four, then we would be using different assessments because um, because of the developmental age levels that I mentioned before and when the sounds are coming in. 
Okay. Yeah. And, and you just touched on the oral facial myofunctional disorders, which that's a mouthful in and of itself, right? It is a uh, mouthful. It is. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, what that is. Uh, yep. And then, you know, what the disorders are, what parents can look for just to give them a better understanding of, of all of it. Absolutely. So it is a mouthful. So for the sake of that, I'll probably refer to it as OMT, which is oral facial myofunctional therapy. Or if you hear OMD, that's oral facial myofunctional disorder. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, So, yeah. So I'm hoping that this becomes more common knowledge because they're now starting to require that be taught in graduate programs. But when I was in graduate school, it wasn't included in the program. So, um, yeah, so, but hopefully that will become more, um, familiar to people. They won't think what, what was that mouthful? (laughs) (laughs) Which is very much the reaction I get when I talk to anyone about it. But, um, I like to describe it based on the goals that we work on when we're addressing OMDs. Um, so the goals of oral facial myofunctional therapy are to, uh, establish nasal breathing both mm-hmm. day and night. That's the first one. Okay. okay. The second one is we want the lips touching lightly at rest. The third is we want the tongue position to be up in the palate and just behind our teeth. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we want that to be whenever we're not speaking or swallowing or um, eating. And then the fourth is what I just mentioned correcting swallowing patterns, which if, um, if you're seeing someone who's trained in oral facial myofunctional therapy, they will be either a speech language pathologist, an occupational therapist, or a registered dental hygienist. If you're seeing an RDH, they can't work on the swallowing part of it because that's not within their scope, but the OT and the SLP can. So I would be addressing if there's any feeding problems associated with it. And also, um, any speech problems that would be associated with. So quick question on the swallowing when, I mean, obviously, you know, and we'll dig into this a little bit more about, you know, nasal because of mouth breathing, the rest of them are, they're pretty, Mm -hmm. I think intuitive, but swallowing, how Mm -hmm. is that a a sign of an airway issue? So, um, I like to use the example of a tongue thrust pattern, which we kind of touched on a little bit before, but sometimes Mm -hmm. what people, adults, children, um, we see it throughout the age, uh, range, they thrust their tongue forward instead of what we want to see, which is like a peristaltic wave where it goes up and kind of back as you swallow the food or liquid or saliva. Mm -hmm. And, um, oftentimes that's a red flag for an airway issue for the same reason, because they're pushing up against the teeth instead and almost opening up the airway to breathe while they're trying to facilitate the swallow as well. Gotcha. Uh, so we would be, so then the other problem with that is that they're shifting teeth. And so you often you will see shifting teeth. So what we call our malocclusions are, um, different bite patterns and essentially crooked teeth in certain ways. So a overbite, a deep bite, over jet. There's a lot of different terms within malocclusion that, um, I trust my RDHs and my dental professionals to speak on more comprehensively. But when we see children or adults, but primarily children with super crowded teeth, um, that's usually a red flag for us as providers that their, their palate is probably too small or narrow. 
okay. because their tongue was not resting up inside the palate to give it that good U shape. So mm-hmm. what okay. we want is the U shape, the nice broad, wide U shape. Mm-hmm. Instead, what we are seeing sometimes is this more narrow V like shape. Like a V, yeah. And then when the teeth are trying to come in, they don't have enough room because it's not nice and wide from the tongue shaping it. And so then we get crooked teeth. And depending on how they're using their tongue when they speak or swallow, that can even further shift the teeth because the tongue is a very strong group of muscles. Mm -hmm. And if it's constantly pushing in certain directions, it's going to shift things. So that's how we actually get the shape of our palate is by keeping, we want that tongue to be up within the palate so that it does keep that excuse me, um, U shape, but when it doesn't rest up there, that's when we start to see that it doesn't hold its shape as, Mm -hmm. as it would otherwise. Okay. Yeah. Um, so those, so that kind of are the goals of oral facial myofunctional therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some causes that can contribute to these. Um, so, so some of the causes, the number one, which is why we're here talking today is, um, airway obstruction. So what could be an airway obstruction? So if a child is not breathing through their nose, we would want to figure out why. So we would want to know if it's enlarged adenoids, if it's enlarged tonsils, if there's a deviated septum, if there's seasonal allergies or recurrent allergies to food or something that's causing congestion all the time and forcing them to breathe through their mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, So the airway is what we look at first and foremost, because that's the most important to the overall function. Okay. And in order to do that, we would, we would um, assess for if they can breathe through their nose. So for instance, we could have them keep their lips together and see like, are they able to breathe through their nose for short periods in our assessment? And if they're struggling, we would be immediately referring them to an ENT first, possibly an allergist to further evaluate these things, um, and try to rule out what is contributing to them not being able to breathe through their nose. Okay. So airway, airway problems are the first thing you would want to look at. And throughout most of this process, there are more than one provider that may need to be involved to help support whatever's happening with the child. Um, the next one would be oral habits. So, um, that would include things like finger sucking, thumb sucking, extended use of the pacifier, um, even nail biting. If you're someone who all the time sits with your face on your right fist, when you're listening in class or when you're talking or anything, eventually having that fist there is going to shift things in your mouth and your face. And so there are habits that we may not even realize that could be contributing, but the bigger ones are the sucking habits, sucking on anything. Some people, some kids suck on their t-shirts all the time or their, or their necklaces. Right. Yeah. So the sucking, we want to figure out, well, why do they need to suck? What is the reason? Uh, Why are they still sucking that thumb beyond the age of, you know, one or two? Um, And we often look to the airway to see if that's helping support their airway almost because when we suck on our thumb, we're jutting our jaw forward a little bit, which is mm-hmm. then opening up the airway a little bit more. So we want to look at, is that part of the problem or is it that they just enjoy the soothing aspect of sucking still, or mm-hmm. is it both? Um, so yeah, so oral habits aren't always as straightforward as people think. 
Um, and I've learned through oral facial myofunctional therapy that these kids that we see who are still struggling to get rid of sucking their thumb, mm -hmm. you know, in, in like almost even eight, nine, 10 year olds, that's usually a sign that there's something else going on with their airway. And that's why they can't give that up. So we would really want to dive deeper into what's going on. Okay. Um, and that would be through an oral facial myofunctional evaluation that would then inform us as to what other professionals would need to be involved to help alleviate whatever's happening. You're listening to Airway First with today's guest, Lauren Ruffridge. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to ensure that every child has access to screening, evaluation, and treatment of all children's airway disorders before the age of six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. You can also find a ton of great resources for parents on our website, including videos, blogs, recommended books, comprehensive medical research, and more. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now, back to our interview with Lauren Ruffridge. Um, so then the, the last one that I wanted to mention that can contribute to an oral facial myofunctional disorder is those tethered oral tissues, the tongue, lip, tie. Um, so... Okay. When, and I don't want to get too nitty gritty because I might mess up some of the details, <laughs> but swallowing starts in utero. Um, after that first trimester, babies are able to swallow in utero. So yeah. when they are born, the patterns that they're showing, they didn't just start doing the swallowing when they're born. They've been doing, been it, doing it for months in utero. So when they're, when they're um, in the stages of development, they're finding that the tongue tie and the lip tie form early on in development as well in utero. And so they're swallowing with that tongue tethered or low lying in their mouth. And so their palate is not forming correctly because it's not able to reach the palate when they swallow. Right. Um, so these, these anatomical and physiological problems that we're seeing when they're born are happening in utero sometimes. So Anyway, that's why we see kids who are right off the bat are having trouble with latching um, to the breast or even bottle feeding. It can impact. Um, however, when we see these children who are a little bit older, who maybe were missed with the, the tongue tie, what we see is that their, their tongue is lying low, which mm -hmm. is then not shaping their palate, which is causing those malocclusions, those crooked teeth, um, which is also putting them at risk for the sleep disorder breathing, because if you have your tongue lying low and you can't, or you're not used to getting it up in the palate. When you lay down, gravity pulls it back uh -huh, and, sits, and it. it sits further into your airway. Mm -hmm. So right. your, your airway space is then sh shrunk down even more. And that's forcing you then to breathe through your mouth more because you're not getting enough through your, through your nose. So, um, and is it so fair it to say for, for parents that, that, you know, if you see a child breathing through their mouth, consistently it's not just you know one night they have a stopping stopping a stuffy nose mm -hmm. that there is an issue it's worth you know oh yes out. yes absolutely um so if we want to just dive into that topic because i know that was something we were going to chat about how can you tell if your your baby or child is mouth breathing or might have yeah. some disorder breathing issues um yes so i, I think we kind of said this but 
when when babies are born, they're supposed to breathe through their nose. We are born as obligate nasal breathers. So if a baby cannot breathe through their nose, they're going to be forced to breathe through their mouth. Same with a child, right? They're going to go to the mouth to help them breathe because they need oxygen to live. Right. But we're supposed to be able to breathe through our nose. So um, why is that important? Why do we need to breathe through our nose? Okay. Okay. There's there's so many reasons um, that nasal breathing is beneficial. So one, and this is not covering all of them. This is just going to highlight a couple. Okay. Uh, nasal breathing filters airborne pathogens. So when mm-hmm. we are breathing through our nose, it's a filter. It's kind right. of sorting through those germs, getting rid of some of that bacteria. If we're breathing through our mouth, we are not getting that same filter. Right. So that means you're, you're more likely to get sick more often. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nasal breathing allows for nitric oxide to be produced. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a complicated topic, but if you look up Nasal breathing allows for nitric oxide to be create to be created, um, and nitric oxide is super important. One of the things that it does is it uh, allows blood, nutrients, and oxygen to travel to every part of our body efficiently and effectively. So, if we're not creating enough nitric oxide, we're not seeing those benefits. Okay, right. which can then lead to other um, other hosts of issues, um, health issues, and then. Another thing is nasal breathing serves as a natural bronchodilator. So it opens up our lower airway, um, the lungs, the bronchi. It helps regulate what's called heart rate variability. Um, and that's a good thing. We want it to regulate heart rate variability because we need, that's a really important thing as well, which um, I'm not going to comprehensively explain <laughs> well. So I will just encourage you to look that up and and understand how important it is um, and how nasal breathing does play a role in that. And then the last thing I wanted to mention, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, and we'll, we'll put a link. We have a blog that kind of touches on this. So we'll put a link so they can click through and read more. Perfect. Um, The last thing I just wanted to mention was that it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, Mm -hmm. which is the rest and digest part of our nervous system. Um, And if we don't have if we don't activate that part of our nervous system, then we become very dysregulated. Um, and then that also in turn impacts our sleep and whether or not we're getting that restful restorative sleep. So again, you're hearing how a lot of the systems are tied together Mm -hmm. and and we really don't realize it until, well, it's educated until we, we spread the word. Right. And that's what we're trying to do. That's exactly right. That's exactly what we're trying to do. So One of the things, um, and I have some other things, but I just wanted to kind of go back to, because you, you touched on something that I don't think a lot of people really comprehend at one of the things that children's airway first that we're advocating for is this full examination, oral examination at birth. That just doesn't happen currently. Um, and you, you touched on it and why it's so important. Uh, I just thought maybe we could talk about that for a little bit that, as you mentioned, these things are formed in utero. So if somebody took the time at birth to look, you'd find a tongue tie or you'd find that V-shaped palate that, you know, where it's still malleable, you can kind of adjust it. Well, so it would, if we identified these things right off the bat, it would better inform our decisions uh, throughout their like early life. So if we are able to better identify these things, we would better be able to support their feeding journeys. Right. So, so many moms I talk to say, I just couldn't breastfeed that they couldn't latch. Right. And 
there's very few cases where it's an issue with the mom. Um, although it may feel like that to the mother, right. How, how hard the struggle is. Mm-hmm. It's usually because there's some sort of oral dysfunction with the baby. And that's not to say it's always a tongue tie. It certainly is not. But if we can identify if it's because of that high palate, so they're not able to get that good suction on the breast um, to latch. If we can identify those things at birth, um, not only will it set the babies up for more success, but I think that it would also really largely impact that mother baby dyad if they Absolutely. do want to breastfeed. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Not, and, and also just the mother's emotional journey afterwards, because that's, yeah, that's hard when you can't absolutely. do that. That is absolutely hard. Yeah. Right. So there's a, there's a quote before we, we move into our next section that I, I wanted to read. Um, that is from an article that we're, we're I know you're going to, you're going to mention, and I will put the link in the show notes, but the quote is the vast majority of healthcare professionals are unaware of the negative impact of upper airway obstruction, which is mouth breathing, on normal facial growth and physiological health. Yes. And yes. to me, I had that whole article, which again, mm-hmm. was a little bit mind-blowing for me. Yeah. That mm-hmm. statement, you know, here we are in 2022, and that's still just not yeah. really understood by most. Yes, I totally agree. I think that... Um, so that article is uh, Healthy Breathing Round the Clock by Nicole Archambault. And um, there's some other articles that I'm drawing a blank on the, the name of it, but there's a quote where this dentist is saying that it's this hidden airway epidemic. Like all of our children, every single person who works with kids, whether you're a teacher, a dentist, a doctor, a speech therapist, a daycare provider, if you are someone who comes into contact with children, you need to be educated um, on the risks of mouth breathing and sleep disorder breathing because of how detrimental it is to our their overall development. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that article specifically, it states quite a few statistics um, on how sleep disordered breathing, which is tied to mouth breathing, um, impacts behavior, cognition, yes. um, and you know is misrepresented as ADHD sometimes. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, there's quite like a the few by Kevin Boyd, just out of curiosity. Yes. <laughs> I'll make sure that one is linked in here as well. I've got that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. That's a great one. We, we know Kevin Boyd very well. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. He's, he's actually one of our uh, board members, one of our advisory board members. Yeah. Phenomenal. As soon as you got to the point about uh, behavioral and cognition, I knew which tennis you were referring to because you know, Dr. Boyd has taken this to such, uh, it, it's not just, it, he looks at it from the, the, you know, the traditional medical perspective, um, but he also has an anthropolo- anthropological background and um, he's got this really brilliant article that, that really ties it together with, you know, these behavioral outbursts or um, how much impulse control you have. And that that somehow ties into airway obstructions. It's a sign. Yeah. And, and just to touch on that, um, I kind of was prepared to chat a little bit about the ADHD misdiagnosis. Yeah. Um, Let's do that because that is, yeah. that is very common with children with airway disorders somehow are labeled and misdiagnosed as having ADHD. That's not to say everyone with ADHD has an airway disorder, just to right. clarify. 
Right, right. And to be clear, I think the message that we hope parents will take away is that um, when going through the process of diagnosing a child, we hope that sleep and breathing and airway will be taken into consideration and looked at before mm-hmm. any child is labeled with really any diagnosis because um, of how detrimental sleep disordered breathing is on the brain and the behavior of of our children and our and adults actually right right which is wild but um so so what I was going to say is when your child is living with sleep disordered breathing their brain and their body are essentially sleep deprived because they are not able to enter into REM sleep Mm -hmm. which is the phase of sleep when that when our brain is restoring or fixing itself Mm-hmm. and all of the little problems that build up during the day. So without REM sleep, we see some or all of the signs of sleep deprivation, um, which you will notice are many of the same signs that we see pr- present in children diagnosed with ADHD. So, um, so here are some of the signs that I took from sleepassociation.org um, okay. of, of, sleep just, of sleep deprivation. So the impairment of cognitive functioning impacts on your stress hormones, disrupting your cognition and destabilizing your moods. For some, this can cause more volatile and intense reactions to everyday life stressors or situations. So what may seem like a small task may turn into a huge production mm-hmm. and it can also make you irritable and angry. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever been sleep deprived, <laughs> you've certainly experienced oh, of course. the impact that it has on your patients, your ability to focus, your ability to function um, yeah. in your job. So Um, Now, let me, on the flip side, read you some of the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. Okay. So it often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork, Mm -hmm. at work, or with other activities, often has trouble holding attention on tasks or play activities, does not seem to listen when spoken to directly, has trouble organizing tasks and activities. Um, So all of these things are consistent with signs you would see when someone is sleep deprived. So it begs the question, is the child truly experiencing attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or is their brain sleep deprived? Um, So so what we would want is for physicians to say, hey, how is your child sleeping at night? Like, let's take a look at some of these uh, signs and symptoms that might indicate that they're experiencing sleep disordered breathing or that they're not breathing effectively at night. And a lot of times I like to say to parents, you know, once our children, our babies are sleeping through the night, we Mm -hmm. don't go in and check on them regularly. We may check on them right before we go to bed, but but we're not listening to the monitor anymore. We're not hovering over them, making sure Mm -hmm. they're okay. And we might not realize that they're thrashing in their sleep, that they're talking in their sleep, that they're grinding their teeth or snoring or gasping for air, you know, um, one of the things that I like to touch on is that extended bedwetting. Like if a child is having trouble with mastering, um, you know, holding their urine throughout the night, that can often be an indicator that they might be having trouble with sleep disordered breathing. And you say extended. So at at an older age, we're talking like six, seven, eight. Okay. Yep. Yep. So if it's past like, yeah, past five, six, seven, eight, um, and we're not really figuring out why, why are they still having this trouble? It's not always because of sleep disorder breathing, but it's one thing that should be looked at that most parents wouldn't, and most really pediatricians aren't um, speaking about. Mm -hmm. So, but it's really, there's, there's a couple different ways that 
it causes extended bedwing. I don't really yeah, know how, if you want to dive into it. No, I absolutely would because <laughs> that is, that is something I, I wonder is you know how is yes. that connected? Because that's one okay. of those things that just isn't obvious to me. Yeah. So okay. So if we're if we're talking about a kid who has what we were referring to as low tongue posture, so their mm-hmm. their tongue is lying low in their mouth. It's also sitting back into their airway as we t- touched on, and when they lie down gravity is making that airway smaller. And so if they're mouth breathing, then they're not exchanging the right amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And if you have an excess of carbon dioxide in your system, that can contribute to relaxing smooth muscle and our bladders Uh, are smooth muscle. So then it's relaxing the muscle and then we're peeing. Okay. So that's one way that it can contribute. Okay. Another way is that a lack of breaths in the body. So we're talking about sleep apnea. So a child who's having so much trouble breathing that they may stop for a short period of time and then gasp for air. So that lack of breathing then Mm -hmm. signals can signal the heart that the body may be in fluid overload. And so it then signals the kidneys to release urine and fluids. Gotcha. Okay, so the body is like, oh my gosh, we're in fluid overload. Like, let's just get rid of some of this. Right. And then the third way is that if we're not getting oxygen in, we go into fight or flight and mm-hmm. everything in our system is focused on our breathing so that we can survive. Mm-hmm. And so it's forgetting about our other systems, everything like else. holding your, holding your urine. Mm-hmm. And it's that system is ignored in order to prioritize your breathing. So okay. So those are three ways that it can contribute to, or it can be linked to uh, sleep disordered breathing. Okay. Which, which I like to chat about because when I was first learning about this, I was like, what? I had right? no idea. <laughs> right. And it's funny. And thank you for explaining because in all honesty, I've seen it on lists several times. Mm-hmm. I, I've never been able You're to make the connection. Why. Yeah. It's like, why, how is this possible? That Yeah. Yeah. I learned that from Autumn Henning, who's um, a leader in our field. She's an oral facial myofunctional therapist, a speech language pathologist and a certified um, lactation consultant. So she, she's a, an educator in the field and um, she explains it so well. So I will attribute knowing that to her. <laughs> awesome. That is absolutely awesome. All right. So I'm a parent and um, I'm noticing that my three-year-old, let's say, is snoring, mm-hmm. which up until you know, I started working with the foundation, I did not realize was not cute. They don't grow out of it. It's a bad thing. So mm-hmm. as a parent, if I see something like that, or uh, I'm noticing my child has that kind of worried expression when they swallow or drink, mm-hmm. what do I do? Okay. So I always tell parents that if you have concerns, your first stop is always your pediatrician, but it shouldn't be your last stop because oftentimes, um, and I'm not blaming pediatricians by any stretch because they have so much that they need to be responsible for, but they are not the specialist in these areas. So if they say to you, they don't have any huge concerns, but it's still something that in your gut you're thinking, but I don't, I don't think this is normal, or I think there's something more to it. Then depending on what the concern is, I would find a specialist within that area of concern. So if it's something that has to do with feeding, mm-hmm. um, I would be looking for a feeding therapist, which would be either the speech language pathologist or the occupational therapist. But you have to make sure that they um, have that training in feeding, because as I mentioned, um, not 
all graduates come out with extensive training. It depends on their program. And so if they've taken a special interest, there will be continuing education courses and they'll be able to speak to their uh, years of experience in working with families or clients with uh, feeding disorders. So, so if that's the, if there's a feeding concern, you'll look for the SLP or the OT with experience. Um, And if you're looking for, um, if you're concerned about breathing, Uh um, first of course is the pediatrician. Um, another one would be an ENT. I would say to ask your pediatrician for a referral to an ENT and say, um, I totally respect that you're not overly concerned about it, but it would really make me feel more comfortable if I could see the ENT and really have them like, you know, either scope or look and give me their insight because it's just really something that's been on my mind. Um, and, and hopefully the pediatrician would be willing to refer you to right. your doctor. Right. Yep. Um, and then the other uh, professional would be the oral facial myofunctional therapist. So why I say them is because um, their role is, is really like they're the umbrella person almost. Mm-hmm. So they will look at the whole function of what's happening and they will say, or we will say, this is the professional that you need to see to rule out X, Y, Z. So we'll be able to kind of parse out what contributing factors might be the most salient thing to look at first, Mm -hmm. and then point you in the direction of the provider who we think is kind of looking at it with the same eyes as we are from the airway perspective. Obviously, all ENTs are looking at the airway, but sometimes you'll hear parents say, um, the ENT said the adenoids weren't that bad. Um, they were only taking up 50% of the airway. So, you know, not all providers are created equal in any profession, you know? Okay. So, um, oftentimes the oral facial myofunctional therapist has been referring to different providers and knows a little bit more as to who will be looking at it with the same lens that we would be looking at it with and, and kind of like looking more closely at those specific concerns. Um, so those are, those are the places that I would go. Did you want to ask something or did I interrupt you? No, 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 you're good. Well, I mean, it's a follow-up question and that is, do you have to be referred to a myofunctional? So it depends on what route you're going to go. So some many, many oral facial myofunctional therapists may be out of network If they are out of network, that means that they may not take insurance, but they may provide you with a super bill that you can submit to your insurance for reimbursement. Um, So what it would depend on is what your insurance requires. So if your insurance requires to have a referral, you would want to just call them and check with them first so that your likelihood of being reimbursed for a portion of the cost is is more likely if you know what the insurance is requiring. Um, If they're in network, Again, you would have to check, but um, it just depends on the facility. If it's a private practice, oftentimes they don't require one, but if it's affiliated with a hospital, like an outpatient center, they, mm-hmm. they might require a prescription or, or a referral. Or a referral. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and as we wrap up, I just I open the floor to you at this point for any final thoughts, anything you want to share, guidance, anything for parents. That- yeah, I think that um, I think that I want parents to know that the first thing is to follow your gut. You know, if you feel like there's something going on with your child, if you're seeing these behaviors, if you're, you're hearing noisy breathing, if you see some questionable feeding things, follow that instinct. And, um, you know, 
don't stop with your first, your first Google search or your first provider who you ask if you feel like something's going on, you know, just don't stop until you talk to someone who you feel is, is really adequately answering your concerns, um, and helping lead you in a direction that you feel is, is acknowledging that. Um, and then I would say that if any professionals are listening out there, um, it's our role, it's our obligation to try and continue to spread the word about airway and sleep disordered breathing and why mouth breathing is a concern and try and help educate anyone who's working with children, but also parents so that they can be their own best advocate and really advocate for their kids and get them on the path that they need to be, um, to, to be successful in their development. And I applaud that. So thank you very much. You said that beautifully and I appreciate that. And thank you so much for being on our podcast and really and truly just shedding the light on quite a bit of information that I think a lot of us either misunderstood or just didn't really fully understand. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be a part of it. Thanks again to today's guest, Lauren Ruffridge, for sharing her medical insight and for each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed our episode, please remember to leave us a review or comment about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via our contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. Remember, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.